0: Hello and welcome to Making Media Now, the Filmmaker's Collaborative Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Azevedo. Joining me today is Lisa Perlman, producer of the Oscar shortlisted documentary, American Justice on Trial, People vs. Newton, which tells the story of the death penalty case that put racism on trial in a US courtroom in the fall of 1968. The case involved Huey P. Newton, Black Panther co-founder, who was accused of killing a white policeman and wounding another after a pre-dawn car stop in Oakland. A retired judge, Lisa Perlman wrote three prize-winning books related to the documentary. Lisa is also the president of Arc of Justice Productions Incorporated, the nonprofit that initiated the documentary film project. The final list of 2023 Oscar-nominated documentaries will be announced on January 24th. Making Media Now is sponsored by Filmmakers Collaborative, a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting media makers from across the creative spectrum. From providing fiscal sponsorship to presenting an array of informative and educational programs, Filmmakers Collaborative supports creatives at every step in their journey. To learn more, visit filmmakerscollab.org. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please share and follow. Now on to my conversation with producer Lisa Perlman. Hello, Lisa Perlman. Welcome to Making Media Now.
1: Thank you very much. Glad to be here.
0: So Lisa is joining us today to talk about a film that has been shortlisted uh, for best documentary short, uh, and it's called American Justice on Trial, People versus Newton. And the Newton is Huey Newton. And the trial took place in 1968. And the, uh, the shortlist category is for the Oscars, which will be held in March uh, of this year. And we will find out whether or not the film made the final cut on Tuesday, the 23rd of January. So our fingers are crossed. But whether or not the film makes the the final cut to be among the uh, the final nominees, um, I certainly hope that the film finds its audience and gets a, a wide viewership. It's a very informative uh, and compelling film. And so, Lisa, if you could give us the uh, synopsis of the film, we can begin talking about it.
1: The film covers uh, the trial, as you mentioned, of Black Panther co-founder Huey Newton in 1968, uh, focusing on the selection of the jury for that trial. It was a death penalty trial uh, for the killing of an Oakland policeman. Uh, Newton and two policemen uh, had a shootout on the morning of October uh, 27, 1967, um, and he was severely injured. One policeman died and another policeman uh, was injured and survived. And the question uh, that arose was who started the shooting and whether or not he would actually be executed. Most of, of the Panthers were sure that he was a goner mm-hmm. um, because they'd never heard of a black man accused of killing a white man, let alone a white police officer, um, not getting the death penalty. Uh, they hired uh, as his principal attorney Uh, Charles Gary, who was known for um, having defendants that never uh, got executed. Uh, So that was huge. He was also, Gary was also one who liked to focus on uh, political left issues. And Huey wanted to make this a case against the uh, federal government uh, to say that that he was putting the United States on trial uh, Mm -hmm. because of the way black defendants were historically treated. And so that was something Gary was game to do. And what fascinated me about this case, as a former judge myself and a trial lawyer, was the selection of the jury. Uh, it was critical. Uh, for two hundred plus years in the United States, a jury of one's peers was white men generally. Right. Um, and yet the defendants were often minorities, and so they were um, focused on making sure this jury didn't consist of mostly white men. Um, And that was an uphill battle, even in Alameda County, which was more diverse than some other jurisdictions would have been in terms of their jury selection. Um, And they wound up with a combination of Charles Gary and Faye Stender, who was uh, also a pioneering woman criminal defense lawyer working on Newton's behalf. Um, They wound up being able to seat seven women And five men, three of whom were minorities. And one of the women was a minority. And that was unheard of at the time. It
0: was revolutionary for a death penalty case. Yeah, In fact, the the jury foreman uh, was a black man named David Harper.
1: Right. And David Harper was the only black on the jury. He was not somebody that the Panthers were very comfortable with. He was a banker. Uh, He was a pioneer at the Bank of America, um, the first national bank to hire a black as an executive. And uh, they didn't trust him. But they also had been lobbying so hard for minorities, they weren't going to uh, ask Gary to exclude him from the jury. Uh, and then the uh, prosecution also was motivated to have at least one black on the jury because outside of the courtroom, you had the Panthers demonstrating every day revolution has come time to pick up the gun. They assumed this was going to be an unfair trial. And mm-hmm. and the prosecutor, Lowell Jensen, wanted the buy in of the community that this was a fair trial. And so what he did something that we don't really highlight in the film, but he did not use five challenges that he could have used to change the composition of that jury to have more white men on it. Um, so he was okay with seven women and a five men of whom only two were white men.
0: Interesting. And I wanna get into the jury selection process in a minute, but just to 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 back out for just a bit to, prove, to gain some context of the time, Huey Newton was one of the co-founders of the Black Panther Party. At the time, 67, 68, how did the Black Panther Party view itself and how what were the Black Panthers portrayed uh, in the media and uh, in and within the ranks of law enforcement at the time?
1: Well, within the ranks of law enforcement, they were the enemy. Uh, they were a militant black gang. As far as the police were concerned, the, the Panthers considered themselves the vanguard of the revolution. Um, and they uh, were um, using as their platform a number of issues that the black community had been upset about for decades. And that included um, uh, the juries not being diverse and included lack of jobs, lack of um, schooling opportunities, um, a, a number of different issues. And and a big one was police um, uh, killing black men, which they did with impunity. If they thought someone was a fleeing felon, they could shoot to kill. And that was a big issue for the Panthers as well. So they started a newspaper around it. They were a very small organization. They only had a few members. There were black Panthers in other cities across the country that were unrelated groups. Uh, The idea came from Alabama. Um, to have Black Panthers, and they had started theirs as the Black Panther Party for self-defense. And that meant they carried guns, which the others did not.
0: Interesting. And uh, going into the events of the the, the night in question, uh, recreate, if you could, for us the the actual event that took place and ended up with uh, the shooting of the two officers and the, and the death of one of them.
1: Well, Huey Newton had gone out with a friend to get, get some food at about the two, two, 30, 3 o'clock in the morning. He wound up on uh, a, a major street in Oakland, where there, which is part of the black community, West Oakland, and he was stopped in his in the car. He was driving his girlfriend's uh, car, um, a VW Bug. Uh, he was stopped by a uh, policeman, John Fry, um, because the license plate was on a list of known Panther vehicles. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had not done anything wrong on that occasion, um, but the police stopped him anyway. Now, they would had confrontations before. And I want to back up and say that the Panthers were created in the fall of 66. And shortly after they were created, uh, they started uh, trailing police around West Oakland as they arrested young black men. And they would stop and Huey would get out of the car and bring his law book because he was studying law at night and he would read um, the Miranda rights to the arrestee. And Miranda was a brand new U.S. Supreme Court decision, um, about right to counsel and right to remain silent. And the police were uh, very unhappy and especially since he was guarded by other Panthers with guns. So. What the police uh, did is they got a local assemblyman to introduce a bill in the state legislature in the spring of 1967 to ban the guns, open carry of guns in cities throughout California. And it was nicknamed the Panther Bill. And that was the reason behind it. And it passed very quickly and was signed into law by then Governor Reagan. Um, So that was not allowed anymore at the time of the confrontation in October of 67. In any event, there were different versions of what exactly transpired. Uh, The uh, uh, prosecutor alleged that Newton had a gun, but they never proved that. Um, Newton said that um, he was pushed down by Officer Fry. And shot, and the jury believed that he was shot by the other officer who arrived as backup. Mm-hmm. The surviving officer, Haynes, and that then New- Newton wrestled with Fry, grabbed his gun, and and shot back.
0: And why so was crack- it so? Why was it so difficult to prove whether or not Newton actually had a gun? Was were there uh, forensics that were performed? You know, either on on Newton in terms of was there evidence that he had shot a gun? What uh, was was a web? Was were fingerprints?
1: The, the reason um, it was hard, harder uh, at the time um, to do that they did have forensics was that the gun that uh, the bullets that killed Officer Fry were from his own gun. There were no bullets found from um, spent bullets from a third gun. There were a couple of. Um, clean bullets found on the site on the ground. And the question was whether those were Hueys or whether the officer had carried some extra bullets of his own that didn't match his gun. Mm-hmm. That was unclear. Uh, they never found a third gun. Uh, they actually never found Officer Fry's gun. What they did find uh, was Officer Haynes, who was the uh, other officer, his mm-hmm. gun, and he shot it twice. Um, And and Newton was wounded in the stomach, and that had to have been by Officer Haynes from 30 feet away. Um, And that's how he almost died, uh, Newton himself. Uh, So there was inconclusive forensic evidence that there might have been another gun, but it wasn't used to kill Fry. He was killed with his own gun.
0: Tell me a little bit about Huey, uh, Huey Newton's uh, life leading up to co-founding the Black Panthers.
1: Well, Huey was the youngest of seven children. They moved to uh, Oakland uh, during World War II as part of the Great Migration. Um, And uh, he was only a small child at the time. So he grew up in Oakland and they lived in various areas of the city that were basically um, black because there was a lot of segregation in Oakland um, throughout his childhood. and he got interested when he was uh, a, a, in his late teens um, in issues like the Cuban Revolution and other um, current issues, the Vietnam War. He he didn't have to go uh, because he was uh, considered one Y. I think. In any event, he got together with Bobby Seal, who was a little bit older, several years older. Um, and they got interested in black history. And he'd already uh, taken um, the opportunity to be involved with an association of older black men who were trying to um, have a study group, book study group on black history because it wasn't taught in high schools or colleges at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was one of the interests that that he had and that the Panthers had of introducing ethnic studies in colleges. They were instrumental in that. In addition, they were against the Vietnam War, so they made an alliance with the anti-war activists who were um, a huge presence in Berkeley and Oakland. Mm -hmm. And uh, Huey got very interested when he saw they were picketing um, an Oakland um, center for induction center, thousands of them confronting the police. And he hadn't seen white students that activated uh, against the police before. So that impressed him a lot. And in any event, uh, what they uh, discovered was that Stokely Carmichael down in Alabama had um, made made a break with Martin Luther King and Mm -hmm. was talking about um, blacks only um, and getting and black power. And um, he was the one Stokely Carmichael was the one who came up with the idea of Black Panthers as a symbol. And he used it for voting rights uh, in Lowndes County, Alabama. And that got advertised. And what happened was the Carmichael suggested that there be groups formed in various cities of Black Panthers. Mm-hmm. And that started in San Francisco, had a group uh which which Bobby Seale joined and then left. And uh, Huey and he decided to come up with their own group, which had weapons. You know, They called the ones in San Francisco Paper Panthers because they didn't carry guns.
0: No, interesting.
1: And so that was their own group that they formed in October of 66. And they used um, issues that had been um, percolating in the community and among black Muslims um, as their platform. And they put that out starting in the fall of 66. But as I said, they were a very small group. They only became big um, uh, uh, noticed really in May of sixty-seven because they showed up to protest that new law about not carrying guns in public right. places, and that made international news. It was a big headline because they came there with guns, which was still legal,
0: right into, right. The,
1: into the Sacramento Assembly, um, and scared the bejesus out of the assembly members.
0: What can you tell me about the the the, the tenor? of relations between uh, law enforcement in Oakland in 67, 68 and the black community?
1: They were hostile. Um, We we have that in the film. Um, It was like uh, the people who lived in the black community felt like they were under siege uh, by the police. The police were white and male, um, and many of them were recruited from the South on purpose. Um, because they knew how to deal with blacks. That was apparently uh, that might have been. That's what the assumption was. But they yeah, were one
0: of the I believe not, it's the former chief of police for the Oakland chief of police is in the right. film. And, and he he makes that point.
1: yeah, he said society was racist. And part of the police um, uh, you know, duty was to protect property and property was mostly owned by whites. Mm-hmm. Um, you could protect it by killing somebody who you thought was burglarizing someone's house. Right. Uh, with impunity, And it wasn't even investigated. In fact, in September of 1966, there was a teenager in San Francisco who was killed by a policeman for uh, either joyriding in a car or they thought he was stealing the car and they just shot and killed him. And there was a riot in San Francisco. that, And that was something that actually prompted the formation of the Panthers in Oakland.
0: So it's against this backdrop that this incident takes place and 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 uh, uh, Hugh Newton is uh, arrested and charged. And then we get into the process of uh, uh, creating a defense for him. So you you've already mentioned uh, Charles Gary. What else do we need to know about Charles Gary that would predispose him to want to take this case?
1: Well, Charles Gary was very feisty. Uh, he had a very different technique than any other uh, defense lawyer at the time. In your face, if he thought you were prejudiced or whatever, uh, he, he would go after you. Um, it was not something that most uh, uh, defense attorneys did. They, they took the first 12 uh, people, didn't seem to have two heads or some major conflict.
0: And this um, is in jury selection.
1: And jury selection. So yeah. that was one issue. But he had also made a name for himself with a uh, a defense in uh, criminal cases of uh, impairment. And so uh, mental impairment um, and diminished capacity is what mm-hmm. they call it. And so he was w- very well known for that. He was also a known lefty. He had defended communists since the 40s. So he was very comfortable with the Panthers and their agenda and worked well with them. And in fact, he treated uh, Huey as almost like a son.
0: So you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, your, your background as a, as a former judge and and a, uh, a trial lawyer, and you've written three books specifically about this case. Tell me what it was or is about this case that has compelled you uh, to, to do such a deep dive in terms of scholarship on it.
1: Well, it started with me wanting to write a book about Faith Stender. She was a pioneering criminal defense lawyer in this case, and she was also one of the founders of California Women Lawyers, which is a statewide organization that started when I graduated law school and then I joined. And then uh, ultimately I was on the board. And every year after her death in 1980, um, they gave out an award in her name. Uh, for women lawyers who are just as dedicated as she was to the underserved, um, Mm -hmm. the the people who um, were on the fringes of society. And she focused on prisoners' rights. And I got interested in her life story and it had never been the subject of a full book, although it had been written about uh, to some extent. And um, I realized that she considered this case, uh, which is the one that made her internationally famous, um, as important in American history as any of the more famous trials of the century that anybody could think of from the 20th century. Um, More more important than um, Sacco and Vanzetti or just as important. Um, uh, And uh, so anyway, what I did is I decided that I would do a deep dive into that case because after I started studying her life and, and interviewing people who knew her, uh, I've, I checked to see how historians had treated the case. And they hadn't. Um, by and large, it was forgotten. It was off the radar. And I was surprised by that, especially when reading someone like Alan Dershowitz's book on pivotal cases in American history, and finding not only wasn't it mentioned, but the ones that he did mention included celebrity cases that were not otherwise significant. Hmm. Uh, so I wrote what I did is I pulled out the material I had gathered for the face gender biography that was specific to this um, case involving Huey Newton. And I compared it uh, with chapters about all the other cases that were listed in um, lists by experts as trials of the century. And I compared them so that people could read my book and see that it was at least as important, perhaps more important. And in fact, I convinced a lot of people that it was much more important. Because what happened in that case is that the jury, which was a diverse jury, came back with a result that no one expected. And a book was written the following year. Uh, to guide attorneys across country with the methods that were used by Faith Stender and and Charles Gary to achieve what they did, which is this huge breakthrough. And it's called Minimizing Racism in Jury Trials. It became the Bible for criminal defense lawyers nationwide. So when you see a jury today that has women and minorities in it, we say, well, yeah, of course, they're part of the community. Um, That wasn't what was going on then. And it was all galvanized by this one case. So that prompted me to write that book, which is called The Sky's the Limit, People versus Newton, The Real Trial of the 20th Century. Then I later published a biography of Faye Stender. um, And I also published a third book, American Justice on Trial, People versus Newton. And the reason I published that book is it's shorter. I wasn't comparing it to other trials. um, But it also goes into the history of the Panthers and the police in Oakland, Mm -hmm. And and what the Panthers did later on in Oakland, which were some very significant uh, improvements, uh, civic improvements, actually. And uh, also it incorporates quotes from the people we interviewed for the film. We interviewed over 30 people for the film whom I had not met or interviewed for my first book. And so this book is more of a companion to the film.
0: And and, and tell me about how you came to be involved in the film. Did the, did the idea uh, originate with you? Did the idea originate with somebody else and you were brought into it?
1: No, I originated the idea um, in a sense. I'll tell you what happened. I, I went to, I'm a Yale graduate and they have a program called Yale and Hollywood mm-hmm. where they invite graduates who are interested in the entertainment industry to meet people who went to Yale, who are, um, directors or screenwriters or otherwise engaged in the in- entertainment field um, for a weekend and present your ideas and listen to theirs and see if you can make contacts. So I went to um, the Yale and Hollywood in March of 2013 after my book, my first book came out. And I was looking for someone who might be interested in making a feature film about David Harper, Because David Harper, as the foreman of that jury, risked his career and his life Mm -hmm. um, to serve in that role. It was very dangerous from both sides. Um, And he was he was uh, uh, instrumental in getting the jury to consensus um, and reaching a result. They kept the peace, probably prevented nationwide riots over this case. Um, In any event, um, I wound up at a um, uh, um, they had a workshop uh, for documentaries and, uh, narrative films, you know, with, uh, heroes in them, I guess. Um, in any event, uh, when I made a presentation there, all the other people there were filmmakers, they were documentarians. And they said, you've got to make a document, documentary about this film. And I really, about this story. And I realized that, um, David Harper was, I just had found out he was still alive. He was 80. Um, and that others would be in their 80s or late 70s. And that if I was going to do it, I need to do it quickly. Yeah. So I contacted Bob Richter, who was a longtime boyfriend of Face Stender, whom I'd interviewed. He's also done 100 documentaries over time. Um, he worked with Walter Cronkite and Edward R. Murrow. And I asked him if he'd be interested in joining me. And he said yes. Then I formed a nonprofit co- a company to own the film. And the first person we interviewed was David Harper. Um, And then later on, um, Bob became ill and um, Andy um, Abrams, who had been our principal cinematographer, uh, Mm -hmm. took on more and more roles and he edited it. And then he wound up being the director um, and producer um, from Open Eye Pictures. So So as as I mentioned, I'm sorry. That took
0: over nine years,
1: uh, all of that.
0: Oh, yeah. The documentary film world does not move quickly. <laughs> no, it as, as I mentioned, the film has been shortlisted uh, for an Oscar uh, for for this year in the sh- documentary short category. And I do want to point out it's a 40 minute film. Oftentimes when people hear that it's a short, they're thinking, you know, something under 10 or 15 minutes. Uh, was it a deliberate decision? to keep the film to a, a rather concise running time uh, or w- was that the byproduct of other issues like budget and schedule? Well, et cetera? It's, both,
1: it's both actually. Yeah. And I should mention that our first fiscal sponsor was Filmmakers Collaborative, and that's how we got started.
0: Applause, applause to us.
1: Yes. <laughs> um, in any event, um, if it happened because of combination. We didn't have the funding for a full for a feature length film because the the editing process would be so expensive, um, and archivals and all of that would have been too expensive. We have the footage. We have mm-hmm. enough. Material. Um, But also, I was very enthralled with the idea of making it just 40 minutes, which was suggested by, I think, Andy and uh, probably uh, one of our other collaborators, because I love the idea of having it go out there and be an educational tool and Mm be in classrooms, um, high school, college, law school, um, because it has a couple of messages. One of them is that diversification of the justice system, not just the jury is an important part of not only making it fairer, but making it perceived to be fair by communities at large. Uh, and the other is it's important to, to actually serve on juries. And um, that's where citizens have that right and responsibility. And most people say, oh my God, how do I get out of this? It's important to the defendants um, that, that um, people participate. So I was very glad to see the 40 minute length because it's perfect for a classroom.
0: Well, it's a it's certainly a informative and compelling film. It's American Justice on Trial, People versus Newton. Uh, We're all crossing our fingers, hoping that it does make the final cut of the nominated Oscar document, short documentary films, which we'll find out on January the 23rd. What is the plan for the film to be shared with a broader audience? Uh, If it doesn't make the final cut to the, you know, the final group of nominees, you know, it's still it. It needs to be seen,
1: right? Well, we're in the process uh, of uh, seeking a distributor, which is Andy's department. Yeah, um, and we want two distributors: one general and one educational. There's already been a lot of interest um, expressed by at, at when we've shown it at film festivals. It's won a number of awards, uh, so the exposure we've gotten just to be shortlisted um, has been very helpful. Yeah. Um, And uh, people recognize it as an amazing educational tool. Uh, One of the things I'm really proud of is that both David Harper, uh, who is the foreman and Melvin Newton, who is Huey's older brother and in the film, um, both vouch for its accuracy and reflecting what happened.
0: In yeah that that, that that says a lot that definitely says a lot yeah it's funny that you you mentioned that you had thought of it as a narrative film centered on David when I was watching it i was I was thinking I, I, I was envisioning what would this film be like, you know, scripted by somebody like an Aaron Sorkin you know the it was rife with courtroom drama along so many um uh from so many perspectives
1: absolutely. Uh, and I'm so glad David's still around. He's 89 and he's very excited about um, this coming out. You know, originally he didn't want to talk to the press and he talked, told the other jurors not to because they were afraid that would just stir up problems. Cool. Um, and so th- this this film is the first time that he went public on film.
0: Wow. That's saying a lot. He he must have had an awful lot of uh, faith and trust in you and in Andrew.
1: He, he did. Um, and, uh, it's been wonderful to work with him, but I also earned the trust of Melvin Newton, who's a retired professor himself. He was the founder of the ethnic studies department in the college that he taught in, in Oakland. So he's been very helpful. And he actually read my first book before it was published and gave me a few, uh, suggestions about family information that was not quite accurate. So I really worked hard to make sure that uh, it was accurate from all perspectives. And I'm actually very proud that Lloyd Jensen, I'm uh, sorry lol jensen uh, who was the prosecutor has endorsed my book American Justice on Trial as the definitive book on the Newton trial. so I got it from different perspectives yeah,
0: absolutely well kudos for that too. Well our fingers will be crossed on January the 23rd as I say regardless of whether you move from the short list to the to the list of finalists uh, for the Oscar, this film most definitely deserves a, a wider audience. so I wish you great luck with the distribution process. Thank you again for taking the time. Uh, we've been talking with Lisa Perlman, who's the, one of the producers on a, a film called American Justice on Trial, People vs. Newton. Thanks very and much. Thanks.
1: And one thing I want to add, thank Filmmakers Collaborative for believing in us from the get go.
0: Absolutely. Take care. Bye-bye.